I'm former Congressman Gary Franks. And I'm his son, Gary. I'm millennial. We're discussing everything from politics to sports and pop culture. From very different perspectives. We speak frankly. Uh, Jennifer, next question, though, the lieutenant governor position, how did that all come about? Now, you're already in a leadership position as in the state legislature. So obviously people had their eye on you because, you know, obviously you're already in leadership. But how did that all happen? Well, I was serving at this point. It was seven and a half years. We had eight years. We had two terms. No, every two years. It was eight years. Sorry. Mm -hmm. And so I was going to be termed out in the next election to come up. Oh, I didn't realize that. You had term limits. Yeah, you have to. I wish the Congress had term limits. Yeah, they should. They should. (laughs) When uh, Governor Scott was running, he was an unknown candidate. He was running against a known candidate, somebody I think you served with, Bill McCollum, in the Congress. Yeah, yeah, Bill McCollum. That's right. And so, therefore, it came to a known candidate of Bill McCollum, an establishment, you can say so, guy in Bill McCollum. And a newcomer on the scene, a newcomer to Florida, seven or eight years thereabouts, a businessman coming in with no previous experience. Unfortunately, Bill McCollum during the primary made a mistake. And his mistake was telling one group of people one thing and in another part of Florida telling them something else. Oh, wow. And that became the the. The, the defining moment when Governor Scott won his primary. Unfortunately for Governor Scott at this time, he needed somebody to carry him over the threshold because he was unknown. He had some issues with HCA and um, some, some Medicaid fraud stuff that was hanging over his head as far as his background. Mm-hmm. And then he was a newcomer to Florida. So he was seen as a carpet bagger. And so they went shopping around really, to be honest. Um, now, he had a lot of money, right? He, he, he had. He had over $200 million oh, of his own. Okay. Oh, okay. So he can write okay. his own ticket. Gotcha, gotcha. And, okay. Uh, his campaign manager, Susie Wiles, that in Jacksonville, known me for m- many years, mm-hmm. proposed to the campaign that they interview me for the position. And I was reluctant, but also mm-hmm. saw that I was coming out of the legislature and there were things because I was chair of the Economic uh, Development Council when I was in the Florida House. And we had some good movement there coming with, uh, with tax credits and so forth to imp- improve and increase economic opportunities, which the legislature for a number of years after Jeb was not focused on. So unfortunately, from governor to governor, it ebbs and flows, depending, just like we'll see with the presidency, it's going to mm-hmm. ebb and flow with the interest as to if you want the economy to grow or if you want more regulations to come in place. Mm-hmm. So I saw it as an opportunity in speaking with him that I'll be able to carry on those plans and measures because his platform was about bringing 700,000 jobs in seven years to Florida, but he didn't understand the political landscape. So mm-hmm. his commitment to me was I was going to help him to get over the hurdle with my relationship with the legislature, understanding the legislative process and also bringing those items that I was working on in the, on in the legislative side to his administration to help with building the, the growth of the economy and bringing jobs back and so forth. Mm-hmm. Well, after the serving, unfortunately, and again, the, the people suffer on this, 
the internal politics of the those that have um, how you want to say um, they, they're not securing themselves, so they have to undercut people and undermine people. Mm-hmm. And they themselves want power and position, and so internally it was a, a big strife with between um, his staff. Mm-hmm. And myself and them trying to cut me out. Because if people look at my website at jennifercarroll.com and look at both my legislative and uh, accomplishments as lieutenant governor, they're going to be blown away with the things that I was able to do. But in those things, you would think in the military, we'll look at, we're working this as a team. We're building this mm-hmm. together. In politics, is if this person is doing a lot and getting a lot of attention and eyebrows on what they're doing, we have to tear them down. Mm-hmm. We can't let them stay up. And and that was the most disheartening thing for me to see how our government is that way. And the president is experiencing this almost on a daily basis. His focus is on the American people, on building a yeah. stronger economy and, and, and framework so that people can have opportunities to do for themselves. And then on the other hand, you have folks that want to just have the power for themselves. Yeah. So they undermine the, the person that yeah. really wants to build that. Now, John, Jennifer, I had something not related, but similar. That <laughs> sounds like an oxymoron right there. You know, in my situation, my opponent in 1994, he did everything possible to uh, to defeat me in that that race. And about that was the race in '94 in which Republicans, no Republican in the House, lost. And I think every governor who ran in an open seat won. I think Jeb won that year as well, 1994. And in that election year, my opponent broke the law. He had a situation where his brother was indicted on 17 charges, 17 charges of breaking the law against me. And no Republican really got involved in being very helpful in that situation from the leadership perspective. And at the time we had a Republican governor. And three years later, (laughs) <laughs> they arrest the guy mm. <laughs> after I'd already because my the person who I beat in 94 ran again in 96 he was he should have and probably was under investigation during that time because the only reason why my opponent's brother did not have coattails as far as bringing down now the sitting congressman who defeated me in 96 was because he said my brother didn't know I was breaking the law so judge said, hey, that's fine with me. <laughs> you know, <so laughs> that was, none of this occurred in the, in, in, the, in the vacuum. Everyone knew this, apparently. I mean, the Republican leadership should have known this. They should have been fighting this. They should have said, Gary, you should have a rematch against this guy because, number one, he broke the law then in 94. He broke the law in 96, too. I had a lot of dead people voting. But anyhow, <laughs> but... but <laughs> But, you know, no one, no one really, no one cared because of the power structure that was going on in Connecticut. Once again, with friendly fire uh, mm-hmm. situation that uh, resulted in, in, in my situation. So, mm-hmm. so it, it's, it's kind of, unfortunately, I tell, tell my kids that unfortunately there, there's, uh, there's that element in politics mm-hmm. throughout. And the problem is that a lot of people, they, they say, well, you know, it's an isolated incident. But now that we're talking, Jennifer, you see that my situation was very different, but similar. You know, you had friendly fire. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had friendly fire. I've heard you know, it. I've, 
it wasn't a situation where the Democrats were able to do it on their own mm -hmm. to defeat me in 96. It was the, it was the fact that the Republicans looked the other way mm -hmm. and, and hoped for the, that I wouldn't see certain things and then didn't pursue things that they should have normally pursued. If a candidate's brother's indicted on 17 charges, each charge would have meant that he should have served at least one year mm -hmm. and should have paid $1.7 million in penalties, each for, in total. And the guy got off with paying a $256,000 fine and having a one-year probation and having house arrest mm -hmm. you know, for like two months on a, on a situation where he could have gone to jail for 17 years. And no one ever gave me a call about the whole trial. No one ever even contacted me about the, the whole situation. And so it's the whole friendly fire thing that you always have to be, be very sensitive to, when you, when you're, especially when you're black, because unfortunately, a lot of people don't want to see you in the position that you may hold well, and that's 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 always mm -hmm. that's always the case and that's why i want my listeners to be able to understand that that you really have to always when you're a black elected official you have to always be looking behind you to your side about every single area you'll be looking because it's, it's going to be a constant constant battle now it was a blessing in disguise for me because i that was fine but and all the people who have attacked me over the years, many of them, most of them, ended up. Let's put this way: I would never want to be where they went. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, that's 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 when you have God in your heart, because where one door closes, multiple open. Once you once you believe in Him, that He He is directing your path. But you talk Amen. about friendly fire. So true. It happened to Joe Rogers. It happened to Alan West. It happened to to even Herman Cain when he was running. At for president, when they saw when Romney and their team saw that he was coming up on their heels, they couldn't let that go. So Herman Cain didn't go down by Democrat fire; he went down by Republican fire. Wow, I didn't know that. I did not know that. How about Alan West? I I, I contacted the Colonel uh, when he had that motorcycle accident that, a few months ago. It's the last time I had contact with him. What happened in this race? I mean, he was, I know he's in Texas now, but he was a congressman from Florida. He was. What, what, was, the, what was the friendly fire that he got? What, what, I didn't didn't realize that. It was redistricting, and oh. they redistricted him out of a seat. But now he he's a. Oh, he's chairman we, of the party in he's Texas. He's the chairman of the Texas uh, That's right. Republican Party, second that largest right. state in the union. So mm -hmm. there you go. Yep. When one door closes, multiple open. That is right. God is good. God is good. Let's get into the election. Okay. I'll just make a general statement. You know, I uh, say to myself all the time, I, I'm, this is so disgusting how they're turning COVID-19 into a, a political issue. And, and it's it's disgusting on so many levels because we never did that before. We've had Ebola, we've had AIDS, we've had swine flu, and we've never, ever turned turn any of them into a political football. And, uh, you know, it's, it's disgusting, really. And, and if, if Biden did not have COVID-19 to talk about, he'd be speechless. Because that's the only thing that they have talked about, and it's and to me, it's uh, it really bothers me to to a great degree because it's so. Uh, anytime you're cheering for people to get sick and cheering for people to uh, to die almost because it benefits you, it's just you know it's just sad. It's really sad that the Democrats have, have gone to that extreme. But any general impressions that you may have, I have other things to say, but I just want to put that out there because I said this on a podcast repeatedly that it's just. I never thought we were stupid at that level. And then there was a TV show, I'm not going to mention the name of the show, that actually danced on Herman Cain's grave. That's lower than low when they made fun of the death of Herman Cain, who uh, we, you alluded to earlier, Governor. And 
you know, in that on that same show, they were wishing the president w- was dead. You know, so I, we've never gone to such low levels in our politics before. I'm going to allude to a, an op-ed be out Monday in the Boston Herald that I wrote that talks about how, and this is a, a, an astounding statement here, that 10% of Republicans believe what they hear in the media. Only 10% believe it. And yet 73% of Democrats believe in what they hear on the media. So that is a huge divide. Most Republicans, 90% of Republicans do not believe or trust the media. Here's the thing. That's a, that's a Gallup poll. That's not, my, that's not just me saying it. And so that, that tells America, that's a very sad statement when we've gone to, to that extreme. I remember, you're too, a little too young, but I remember when Walter Conkright was on TV, when he, whatever Walter Conkright said, you could believe it and we could trust it. That was it. Mm-hmm. And now we're in a situation where, where it, there's a the political divide where Republicans just have tuned off a lot of the press and the Democrats, they, they drink the Kool-Aid and just believe all this stuff that, that some of these uh, cable networks would talk about. And that, a lot of it's so bogus and twisted. Well, going back to your first part, as far mm-hmm. as the fear and scare and how the elected officials are comporting themselves. And in the past, we would have society straighten them out. That we That's right. would have society say that the morals and mores that you're expressing is not that of the leadership of what we expect in government. So those people would have been booted, booed out of office and never allowed to run again. So we have gone away from that decorum, number one. Number two, it's a politics of fear tactics. Even during George Bush's time, he's going to drive grandma and grandpa off the cliff and yep. all these senior citizens are going to lose it. And if you listen to all those mantras over the year, Nothing has really materialized to take away people's social security. It's not going to just happen with a swab of a pen of a president, but they say it all the time. Kids are not going to get fed. I don't. I haven't seen any time in my lifetime in America where we haven't fed those that are hungry. As a matter of fact, we're very compassionate. When people are in need, when we have rioting and destruction, famine, we will feed people. We will send money overseas. We'll feed our own will clothe our own, we'll take care of our own. So it, it's it's strange that we have come to this point in time where we are so fearful COVID has, and when President Trump came out and he says, I didn't want to fear people. I wanted to do my part to make sure we were safe, that we had measures in place to protect the American people, that we have a plan moving forward to develop the, the vaccines at a quicker rate pace. And so why would a leader, if you're a good leader, want to come out initially and fear people and have pan- have a pandemonium occur where folks will be killing themselves like in the 1920s when the, the stock market went down and people just killed themselves because they've lost everything. That's no, not, that's the leadership we expect at the executive level at our government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's also too, with people on the Democrat side believing in that higher percentage of the media, what the media is giving them, they're not allowing themselves to seek information from other sources. They're mm-hmm. staying with the CNN, the MSNBC, and all of them are saying the same thing, regurgitating the same thing. So you repeat a lie often enough, or you repeat something often enough, then it becomes real. But what I encourage people to do is to get outside of their comfort zone, listen to other news uh, outlets, read other news stories, do some research so you can expand your intellectual horizon so you can truly make an informed decision. As people are going to vote this election cycle, it's all about personalities. Well, I like Joe Biden or I like President Trump. It's not about how you, who you like. 
is about who's going to bring about an opportunity or opportunities for building generational wealth, particularly for the black families. Yes. And when the president laid out his platinum plan, I was in Atlanta, Georgia, when he did this, and it specifically lays out all the elements that the president wants to do to make sure that we can truly heal black America from the ground up in these opportunity zones and bringing jobs to low income areas and specifically stating he's going to put aside $500 billion to build capital in the black communities, as well as putting a number amount of 500,000 new black owned businesses with 3 million new jobs that he wants in the black community. I have never in my lifetime heard of any president prior to to give such a bold plan to put a dollar amount to say this is the economic empowerment I want to put in the black communities. So with black families looking at both Joe Biden's been in office for 40 plus years and he's never once I saw his commercial the other night said he wants to now give historical black colleges money. Well, President Trump has already done that for the 40 plus years that you had. Did you ever come up with that plan? Also, too, he says, I want to build back better. Well, you were with Obama, our first black president for eight years. Where was your plan then to say you want to build back the black community better? So if you haven't done it in the past, what can we trust you in the future? We do know that one thing that President Trump has done is put information out there that he knows he's going to be held accountable for, because if he doesn't succeed, you're going to have the media all over him. You're going to have the black community all over him, regardless of if they voted for him or not, as well as we... When you look at some financial planners are planning and, and they're educating their customers with having a plan A and a plan Biden for retirement, because Biden has already stated he's going to repeal the tax credits and breaks that President Trump has done. What does that mm -hmm. mean? Increased taxes on individuals. The stock market, you saw a little bit of how they responded and reacted when the president went into the hospital. So if they have 401ks, and they have retirement plans and they have uh, IRAs, they better think about who has better policies to put in place to make sure that they can plan for uh, economic growth, business growth, planning for discretionary funds for their families, having money, more money uh, from their hard earned work to put aside for their families. And so don't look at the personalities, don't look at who you like. You're not voting for your national friend or national priest. You're voting for somebody that's going to put policies in place to give you economic strength to build generational wealth for your families. That's right. No, very well said. I, I agree. And I, I think the, the Platinum Plan is a uh, great initiative. And, and once again, I, I don't believe I've seen a plan like that coming out of any candidate, including Obama, when they were running for president. I agree. Totally. I, I, I don't think I've seen it from anybody. And the press has tried to, you know, not try, they've totally ignored it. Totally ignored it. Following three terms on the city council and three terms in Congress, former Congressman Gary Franks' consulting firm has helped scores of companies, large Fortune 500 firms, small businesses, and even startup companies secure millions of dollars in federal government contracts and international business opportunities. Congressman Franks, a Yale grad, author, Fortune 500 executive, and former visiting professor at Georgetown University, UVA, and Hampton University, will use his knowledge, experience, relationships, 
and strategic plan model to help you reach that next level of success. Schedule your participation in an upcoming webinar to learn just how Congressman Franks can help you. For more information, email gary at garyfranks.org now. I want to go back to one of your earlier points because I was part of that. That's during the Metascare. And so I think that the person who has to be highlighted for doing this is the old politician from Arkansas, that being Bill Clinton. Because when I was in office, I just could not believe that in concert with the Clinton News Network, he was able to convince America that the Republicans were cutting Medicare. And we kept saying, no, we're not. And even I had to go through so many town hall meetings with my constituents and tell them that this is what we're doing. Medicare is at, let's say $100. Bill Clinton would like to take it to $110. We want to slow the growth of Medicare. We're going to take it to $105. That's not a cut. That's still an increase. 100 to 105 is more. But Bill Clinton convinced America through the Clinton News Network that our going to 105 was really our saying 95 versus 100. In other words, if you think of a cut, you see it going from 100 to 95. No, we weren't doing that. We were taking it from 100 to 105. We were still increasing it. They were able to sell that. And they demonized New Gingrich as the big bad guy. And they were able to get that over. And that was the first big, 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 big lie in which the media really worked in concert with the Democrat Party. I can remember because I was there when that happened and it was just so despicable. And I remember in Florida when Governor Childs played a game with the, the voters of Florida and said that Jeb Bush was going to cut Social Security or and Medicare. It's a federal program. He couldn't cut it if he wanted to. Mm -hmm. And yet he sold to the people of Florida that if you elect Jeb Bush, he was going to cut your Medicare, your Medicare and your Social Security. And I heard it went all the way to court. After he won, he went to court and admitted he did it. He lied. You know what I'm saying? I lied, but I'm governor. I said, what, what is this? How can you just sit on the stand and say, I lied to the millions of people of Florida, but I'm governor, so that's it. Who cares? You know, it's over. Well, that's the problem that I have with these people, because Harry Reid knew that Mitt Romney paid his taxes, but he said it on, on the floor and have it repeated by the media that Romney didn't pay taxes. And afterwards, after the election was over and Romney lost and in, being interviewed, Harry Reid said, it worked, didn't it? And yeah. that's pretty sad because yeah, again, in our society, we should not allow that. And just like Adam Schiff, Adam Schiff knew that there was no evidence of a Russia collusion between the president, that they spied on President Trump's campaign, that it was fabricated and paid for by Hillary Clinton. They all knew that, but had to spend over $30 million that's of taxpayer right. funds on a sham impeachment hearing and went through the impeachment process. Why is he still in office? The yep. American people should be rising up to say this. I don't even care if they're in his district or not, but it should be a, an outcry that this level of deception in a high level office should not be allowed in this country. I agree. I agree. And you mentioned Harry Reid. He's another one that I want to make a few comments about. Harry Reid and, yes, Joe Biden knew exactly what they were doing when they passed Obamacare. They did it the wrong way. Never in our country's history has a major piece of social legislation been passed by 
only one party. It's never happened. You can look at Medicare, bipartisan, Medicaid, bipartisan, Social Security, bipartisan, voter rights bill, bipartisan, civil rights bill. And many of these bills, more Republicans voted for it than Democrats. All of the social programs that we've had and, and voted for, Head Start, all were passed in a bipartisan manner. Harry Reid got rid of the filibuster so they could pass Obamacare with, with simply Democrat votes. Mm -hmm. And that is why for the last 12 years, um, 10 years or whatever, we've had this major divide in our country on this healthcare issue. No one wants anyone with pre-existing illnesses that not to be covered. Everyone's going to take care of that. I mean, but they have made this a political football for 10 years when Joe Biden, who was given the charge by Barack Obama because of his talents and skills, even though he claims he's a mediocre guy, which I believe he's probably a little less than mediocre, but he uh, was supposed to work with Congress to get this through. He claimed he could work with Republicans and Democrats. Well, he didn't work with one Republican on the House side or the Senate side to pass Obamacare in a bipartisan manner. I went on a trip with the former members of Congress not too long ago, and I said this to the Democrat member. I said, what the hell, why, why did that happen? He said, Gary, I don't know why. I had the bill that would have that would have addressed the malpractice reform, and that would have gotten a number of Republican votes if Obama had put malpractice reform in there. I talked to Obama personally several times about putting it in there. He said he was going to do it, and then he backed off and said, I can't do it, I can't do it. And that's when everything fell apart. There were Republicans willing to participate in Obamacare legislation, like other social programs have been passed. Even welfare reform has passed with tremendous bipartisan support. I chaired that committee. And Obama and Biden decided, no, 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 no. We got the votes. We'll give you the full bus. Harry Reid set Obama up and Joe Biden didn't do his job. And that's why we had a piece of legislation that, that affected such a large segment of our population as far as the economy is concerned. It was only intended for about 20 million people, which is far less people than around welfare, quite frankly. To this point where today it's been a football that's still going back and forth to the Supreme Court on a regular basis. I just wanted to bring that up because Harry Reid should take some light. Hey, he and Bill Clinton, they were they did some things very sneakily in a very sneaky type manner that have helped divide this country because Obamacare has divided this country and the whole Medicare, the scaring voters, which Bill Clinton did help divide America. And then they sit back and try to say to us, I could bring America back together. You don't want to divide America. You don't want to divide America. It's just that the liberal media has been protecting your derriere all these years. Mm -hmm. Just like Joe Biden plagiarizes so many times. He plagiarized in school. Ted Kennedy almost got thrown out of Harvard for plagiarizing. It's a major <laughs> offense. Mm -hmm. And Joe Biden did that when he was in college. He did that in his speeches. He did that with the COVID-19 in his speech <laughs> today and Sunday in Durham, North Carolina. I saw it on CNN. He said, we don't have a red America. We don't have a black America. We have a united America. Well, guess what? I know that everyone attributes that to Barack Obama, but if you go back to some history books, I said that long before Barack Obama <laughs> when I was in Savannah, Georgia, testifying before a three-judge panel about racial gerrymandering. And then he had the nerve to plagiarize Obama again and within 10 seconds. Well, you know, you got to have my back. I have your back. I have, you got to have my back. That's, that was the whole theme of the 2012 campaign in the Black community. If you listen to his commercials, the things that he's saying he wants to do, President mm -hmm. Trump has already done it. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Already, the thing about the left is that they want to silence opposing views. So mm -hmm. we had some doctors come out, talk about COVID and how to, to manage the spread. 
and you if they say go out in the sun uh, the uv rays kill it instantly the wearing the mask is not as effective as people thought it was they silence that and don't even expose that they only want to hear one side of the story but folks have to look at their country this is america it's um, america is a republic the republic means that the people the government is represented by for the people by the people the people is in charge of their government and we've gotten away from that for these selfish elected officials who would live on a pedestal and they want to blame uh, call Donald Trump an emperor if you're in congress for 50 40 30 years you've been there too long what, what corporate america ceo and coo do you know that's been sitting there forever in a day like that so it becomes a stagnated type of leadership in the government because you have the infiltration of the lobbyists and and the good old boy that there's nothing new that will come about to truly benefit america and americans and when donald trump stepped on the scene they knew that they had the cia fbi doj and all these alphabet suit people that are working in tangent with these folks in in politics to get their way to weaponize it against the american people all these prosecutors that george soros have have backed in our communities that have incarcerated so many of our black males taking them away from their families here comes donald trump on the scene to say here is the first step act and when i get elected i'm going to work on the second step act to get these folks that's been overcharged or witness tampering or information that could have released these people from being charged that overzealous prosecutors have let them sit in jail for 10, 20 years, which are our own black males. That's right. Yeah. And we haven't That's seen right. a growth in our black population across America in many years. We stagnated between 11 and 12 percent. Hispanic population growing by leaps and bounds of 40 percent. Mm -hmm. So between infant mortality, birth defects, incarceration, black on black crime, health disparity and economic de depravity in our communities, None of those people from Barack Obama to Joe Biden to Kamala Harris, none of them have done anything and proposed anything to help the black community. Here's a, a billionaire that came on the scene to say, this is not my country going downhill. And this is not the way we ought to be treating people that have been deprived for all these years. And I'm going to put something forward and put my signature on this to make sure that I have um, uh, measures and matrix and my name for success on this to help the black communities uh, evolve into a bigger and stronger economic power. And if folks can't see that for this election and get away from party affiliation and look at themselves and their families and what they want to accomplish in life, then there's nothing we can do for them. Boy, I couldn't have been said better. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I'm going to echo on one of your points as well. They're too damn old. Mm -hmm. 30 years ago, I served with Nancy Pelosi. 30 years ago, I served with Cindy Hoyer. 30 years ago, I served with Gladwell. Why did I mention their names? Because that's the leadership of the Democrat Party. They're all over 80. Ronald Reagan left the White House at a younger age than Joe Biden would walk into the White House. And they made fun of the fact that Ronald Reagan was old. All these people need to get off the stage. They really, really need to get off the stage. I would like to good. thank you for having me on. I truly appreciate the opportunity. It was great dialogue. And hopefully your listeners get got something out of this that will enable them to have the knowledge to be empowered to make the right decisions 
for their families and for their future. And it was great dialogue and it was great being back on with you and wonderful family that you have. You've raised them the right way. And that's what we ought to be looking at, how we can impact the next generation to impart upon them more than we've had. Well, I want to thank you, Jennifer. But before we leave you, my son wants to talk about your your son, the NFL player. Oh, well, he, <laughs> way to put me on the spot there. So thrilled when I saw that your son was, was drafted. And then going to Miami, I said, I know you must be even more proud that he's coming home. To, I mean, that being to Florida. I know you had to be a proud, and you're still, and you're a very proud mom. I'm not, I know you are. But that had to be a great thrill to have your son play professional football. It was. He was in the NFL for almost nine years. Yeah. And he advanced and excelled. Miami was his first team. And it was the first team of his dad's as well, because his dad from Miami. So all of his dad's family was elated as anything else when he oh, was drafted wow. right out of the University of Maryland to play <laughs> professional ball. Then he went to the Eagles and, and Dallas. But folks will see that it's a, it's a very brutal and tough industry to work in because yeah. folks will see just what happens on Sunday, Thursday and Mondays. But behind the scenes, the injuries, what goes into studying the plays, studying yeah. your opponent, yeah. building your body and strength so that you're prepared every week. And there's no guarantee. Even after the season is over with, you come back next season, you're competing for a, a starting spot. And it's, it's never ending because we had mm. our family vacations and, and we had to plan it around him, but it could only be every year, about two or three days because in his mental, he couldn't be away from, from working out and working out a gym for us. We get tired just, just seeing the treadmill, but, <laughs> but for him, it's like running the beach and then picking up a tire and picking up the rope and all this other stuff because he had to stay physically fit. And then on yeah. top of that, do the studies for the plays. So yeah. it's really a lot that goes into that player getting on the field rather than us beating them up when we see them on TV. Because I even, I'm guilty of it. I go, why did you make that stupid play? And he goes, mom, <laughs> you didn't understand this, that, and the other. <laughs> but I commend all of those players. I wish the NFL did a better job of really preparing them for after football. I mean, my son did a great job because he had his mom and dad. But many yeah. of these players don't have that uh, family support. They may have a mom, they may have a dad, and if they have other people around them, those people are just sucking money from them like crazy. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, fortunately for my son, he had a good infrastructure there, but I've seen other players that came up with my son that at the end of the day, they had nothing or their family mm. members were just sucking them dry and or yeah. they didn't have a plan after they came out of football to a life after football. And it, I think the NFL could do a better job mm. of not holding their hand, but just having a phase, a phase out so that yeah. they're not on their own once they come out of the NFL. That's an excellent point. And I'm sure uh, the other professional leagues should do the same. You know, back baseball and, and, and baseball and has done well. it better than all the others. Tell you oh, that. they have. Okay. Yes, I didn't realize have. that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, but again, it was a pleasure being on with you guys. We're very, very thrilled that you were on the show and our first guest. And I, I, so I'm going to thank you again for being on the show. Continue success and we'll stay in touch. Thank you so much. God bless you all. Don't forget to subscribe.